What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. November 2012, Carrie Lee Farver vanished from Omaha, Nebraska. Carrie, 37, was a devoted mother, reliable employee, and loyal friend, and not the type to shirk responsibilities, abandon her son, and run off while her dying father took his last breaths. It appeared that Carrie had dumped her new boyfriend, quit her job, and relinquished custody of her son to her mother, and all by text. While Kari's boyfriend, Dave Krupa, and her supervisor were bewildered by her abrupt disappearance, they accepted the text at face value. Her mother, Nancy Rainey, was alarmed and reported Kari missing. Police were skeptical of her claims that a cyber imposter had commandeered her daughter's phone and online identity. While Nancy was afraid for Kari, Dave Krupa was growing afraid of her, for he believed Kari was stalking him. Never seen or heard, the stalker was aware of his every move and seemed obsessed with his casual girlfriend, Shanna Liz Gullier, often calling her a fat whore in the 12,000 emails and texts he received in a disturbing three-year deluge. How did the stalker know Dave's phone numbers immediately after he changed them, the names of his lady friends, even what he wore as he watched TV? He and Liz reported death threats, vandalism, and burglaries, but the stalker remained at large. The threats were vicious, vile, and often obscene, sent mostly via text and always in Carrie's name. There was some truth in the messages, but all one big lie. The culprit was not Carrie. With mesmerizing detail and narrative skill, Leslie Rule tracks every step of the heart-pounding path to justice. From a sociopath's twisted past to the deadly deception and the high-tech forensics that condemned this killer to prison. The book that we're featuring this evening is A Tangled Web. A cyber stalker, a deadly obsession, and the twisting path to justice. With my special guest, journalist and author, Leslie Rule. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for this interview, Leslie Rule. Thank you for having me, Dan. Thank you so much, and congratulations. I know you were an, a nonfiction and fictional writer before this, and this is 
congratulations, your true crime debut. Thank you. Let's talk about, as you do in the introduction, how you came to be involved in true crime, um, how you, being Ann Rule's daughter, first got into the, we'll say, the business. You talk about being a photographer, being in school. Tell us about your first job as photographer and research assistant, as you do in the book. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, I was 17 when I started going with my mom to trials to photograph the killers for her articles. Um, later, they were it was for her books, but in the beginning, she was um, writing articles for the detective magazines. So it was a little bit nerve-wracking, uh, my camera, and point it in their face. I got a lot of icy glares, um, but it was also very interesting. This uh, occupation that you have, your mother also came to this honestly as well with her grandparents. As you write, tell us about your grandparents and their little mom and pop jail and what that led to in terms of the interest for your mother in terms of crime and true crime. Well, it was a, a my mother's grandparents were a powerful influence on her. They lived in Stanton, Michigan, and they ran the Ma and Pa jail there. Her grandfather was the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Chris Hansen. And from the time she was a little girl, she spent her summers there. And she would sometimes watch her grandfather work. There were other people in the family, uncles, who were uh, also under sheriffs. And she would eavesdrop and soak it all in. And she found it fascinating. She'd think, how do they take, how do they take a button and trace it back to a killer? And this sparked her interest from the time she was really, really young. And her grandmother cooked for the prisoners. And one of them taught her how to knit. And my mom thought, well, she seemed like such a nice lady. But she was in, she was in jail waiting trial for murder. And she, my mom didn't quite get it. Viola was the woman's name. And she explained it to my mother. She said, well, it was justifiable homicide. She had caught her husband in the arms of her best friend in the truck. Uh, she had bought her husband with tips she made waitressing. So uh, she shot him and felt it was justified. And my mom didn't really get it. She, it didn't make sense to her. So that was her first encounter with a deadly sociopath. And it really sparked a lifelong interest for her. You write that her dream was of being a police officer was fulfilled, and she did it at 28 years old, Seattle Police Department. But you tell us she, that... Um, go ahead. Oh, she, it was her dream job, and she wanted to be a police officer more than female officers had to wear skirts and heels, and they weren't allowed to carry guns. Can you imagine chasing after a... a a criminal in a skirt and heels. <laughs> so she was on the job for about eight months, and then the um, yearly physical came around. And without her glasses, she was legally blind. And wow. she took the eye test, and she, she couldn't see the biggie, even when she was allowed to creep up really close to, to the chart, um, because the um, examiner felt so sorry for her, she still couldn't see it. So she lost her job. Uh, the thinking was that if her glasses got knocked off in a struggle, she wouldn't be able to defend herself. Well, they thought it was all right for her to wear a skirt and heels and not have a gun. So, but I guess they didn't like the idea of her losing her glasses on top of all of that. So that was absolutely devastating for her. She wanted it more than anything. And she said she couldn't drive by 
the Seattle Police Department for years. She took detours just because it broke her heart. And then a few years later, she started writing articles to support the family and um, was welcomed back to the police department and hung out in the homicide department and her old friends opened their files to her. And that's how she started her career as a crime writer. Now, at the same time, she's a successful writer. You're taking photos, assisting her in court, and you're her research assistant as well. Talk about Anne volunteering for a suicide crisis uh, center. Why is that? What was the personal experience that led her to that? And who did she meet working at this crisis center? Well, one of the most um, devastating things that ever happened to my mom in her entire life was the loss of her younger brother her only sibling to suicide. And she never got over it. She had tried to talk him out of this depression and wasn't able to. Back then, they didn't have medication like they do today. He was a, a medical student, and he was actually very smart, and he, but he didn't think he was doing well enough, and he took his own life. So this was before I was born, um, and it was a few years after she had kids that a nonprofit group started the Seattle Crisis Clinic, and it was a hotline for troubled people to call. And she thought, well, I couldn't help my brother. Maybe I can help someone else. So she went through the program and was trained, and they would put people together in teams of two. And so she was teamed up with who she thought was a very nice young man. His name was Ted Bundy. And together, she and Ted worked the hotlines and saved many lives. Back then, if somebody called in and um, they were in the process of taking their own life. Maybe, maybe emergency services couldn't get to them as quickly as they could today because they had to trace the call. I mean, it could take over an hour. And this was in the right. 1970s. So they would wait. They'd be talking to the person. Sometimes the person would pass out. Pretty soon, somebody would pick up the phone and say, it's okay, we're here. Uh, we got them and we saved them. And so that was that was very satisfying uh, for her because she wasn't able to help her, her brother, um, but she kept Bundy uh, receiving the lives of uh, many other people. And she, she actually found out later that on the shift that he worked by himself that he would turn off the phone and nap. So he really wasn't. Wow. He, I, think he, I think the compassion he showed was all on that. Right. Now, I- interestingly, your mother was offered a book deal. And she got to that point where they said, listen, you can get a book deal. There's some murders in this area. If this person is apprehended, then you get this book deal. And sure enough, this person that she thought her friend was, was the subject of this manhunt. And later she wrote the groundbreaking true crime classic, Stranger Beside Me. And as you write, she didn't let this go to her head. Uh, She just had a modest lifestyle. And you inherited a fascination for dark mysteries. But you wanted to carve out your own niche. You wanted to carve out your own niche. So you didn't go the true crime route. Tell us what you start writing about. Well, I write about the paranormal. I have four nonfiction books of ghosts. On top of introducing me to the serial killer when I was 14, my mother also raised me in a haunted house. So it was kind of a spooky childhood. Um, But I was fascinated by otherworldly things. I actually, when I was a child, I was afraid, but as an adult, I just found it really interesting and actually very reassuring to find signs of life after death. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, you say that killers have not changed. 
but their methods have. And they now have an arsenal of electronic devices that they can use to dupe people. But you say they can outsmart them by learning their tricks. You also write that one of the most important things for your mother in her writing was she would save people's lives potentially by showing them how just ordinary people could be very much like Ted Bundy, uh, a real actual threat without them knowing. So she was most pleased, you say, that she could actually save lives as a process of her writing, didn't she? Yes, and she got quite a few letters from people writing to say, your book saved my life. Um, they saw trouble coming, wow. and they recognized it because they read about things like that in her books, and that made her so happy. It was, um, mm-hmm. it was doing something very positive. Because early on, when she first started writing about crime, there was a lot of criticism. This was before it was a, a popular genre. Um, there really weren't any females writing about crime, and a lot of people criticized her for writing about such a dark topic. So when she got to a place where she realized that this was really helping people and saving lives, um, she felt a whole lot better about it because people shamed her about it. How can you write about such horrible things? Incredible. Times have changed. Now, let's talk about your true crime debut, A Tangled Web. You picked a incredible story, fascinating story. But you say the predator in this case used a different kind of web. Why call this book A Tangled Web? What is it a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for the uh, worldwide web and also for the sociopath who was so dangerous actually tangled kind of a web around people with her manipulation. So it worked both ways. It just seemed like the perfect title for what she did. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that and introduce the characters. You talk about Dave Krupa. You say he liked women, didn't like commitment, and just ended a 12-year relationship with a woman named Amy Flora, and they had two kids together, an amicable split. And this is summer of 2012. Tell us what this Dave, 34-year-old Dave Krupa, healthy and attractive, and he manages a Hyatt Tire store. He's a mechanic. Tell us a little bit about Dave Krupa and his life. Well, he's a, actually a very nice guy. He was years, and um, he and his longtime partner had a couple of kids together. And it just, it's, you know, uh, about half marriages, um, half of the marriages out there don't work. And then they got to the point, they actually didn't get married, but they got to the point where their relationship lost all its steam. And they parted. And it was very painful you know, for him and for Amy. But they remained friends. And he was kind of lonely. And he thought, you know, I've been in a committed relationship for years. Now I just want to have a little fun. I just want to meet some some interesting women and socialize a little bit. And I just, I'm not ready to be tied down. So he went to a website called Plenty of Fish. And he signed up. And he started looking at the profile of females in the area. And he found a woman right away that he found attractive. Her name was Liz, and they met for a coffee date. He didn't know what he'd gotten into. His philosophy was that he just got out of a long-term relationship. So he had said to her that, listen, I don't want a commitment. I just want to have some fun. What was her response to that request? She seemed like she felt the same way. She smiled and nodded and agreed, and he thought that that's what the arrangement was. Unfortunately, she got very possessive very quickly, and she wanted all of his time, and he was very uncomfortable with that. 
And he told her, I'm going to continue to date. And he did. Uh, but she, that did discourage her. She still stuck around. She still kept coming around. He actually went as far as to soon, well, in this relationship, not like really conversing with her, but he really did enjoy the sex. He thought she was kinky and they had, but he did say to her, listen, I, at some point, I don't love you. and I'm not going to love you. He said as, as firm as he could, that he did not want to have an exclusive relationship and that he would continue dating. But despite that, what did she do and what did she continue to do? In the beginning, she was kind of about her desire to be uh, with him exclusively. But as time went on, she started to nag him about it. And she actually became obsessed with the idea that he was hooking up with his ex uh, when he went to pick up his kids. He was not doing that. Their relationship was over and they were simply they become friends. They were raising kids together, but she would not believe that. And she was uh, obsessed with that. And if he had a date, she would call and say, Hey, you want to get together tonight? And he was very upfront. He'd say, no, you know, I can't, I've got a date tonight. And he'd come home from work and she'd be sitting there waiting for him. And then she would seduce him thinking that maybe she was going to wear him out and he wouldn't be interested in uh, anyone else. Um, but mm-hmm. he said it didn't slow him down. He, he was guy in his 30s, was still pretty healthy. He didn't even realize in the beginning what she was doing. It took a few times before he realized, well, wait a minute, she's trying to wear me out. Wow. So she did everything she could to him from seeing other women, but it didn't work. In regard to his idea, his, his statement about that he didn't want to be committed, despite that, she proposed a four-week commitment trial to see where the relationship would go. Again, unfortunately, he agreed. Well, while this Kinda, trial, this four heartedly agreed, just to sh- just to shut her up. Um, right. They've been dating for about five, six months, and she started writing him texts suggesting that they commit to for four weeks, and she thought that maybe at the end of four weeks he'd be ready for a real commitment. And the first time she suggested it to him, um, he said, "No, forget it." And she kept bringing it up. And finally, just to shut her up, he went, yeah, yeah, whatever. But he was so busy that he really wasn't seeing anybody else at that point. Um, he had his kids. He had his job. He had time with her. Um, but he, he didn't want to be committed to her. And at the end of the, those four weeks, he actually did go on a date with a woman he met um, who he was very attracted to. And that was Carrie Farber. They met at work, and you say that... Uh... They didn't meet online, but he was reluctant to approach her at work. But two weeks later, he saw her profile on Plenty of Fish. They contacted each other, and she came back into the shop under some premise, and they exchanged numbers, and they start going out. Yes. Now, what did Liz do when she found out about Carrie Farver? She was pretty upset. Um, On their very first date, Dave and Carrie met for dinner. And they sat down and they were enjoying each other's company and laughing and having drinks. And all of a sudden his phone started to blow up and it just went on and on. about like 20 messages in like five minutes. And finally he thought, well, something serious has got to be going on. So he excused himself and uh, went and called Liz back and asked her what was up. And she said, I need to get some things I left at your apartment. And she insisted that she go right then and pick up, um, oh, it was like a T-shirt and a toothbrush and some pots and pans. 
in some things that she really normally didn't care about. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm on a date. Leave me alone. Um, so he and Carrie finished their dinner and they went to his apartment. They were going to just kind of hang out and watch TV or play cards. But no sooner had they entered the apartment when the buzzer on the security door starts going off. And he, he could ignore the cell phone, but not that. So uh, he couldn't talk to uh, Liz through the intercom because it was broken. So he went out to the door and she was standing there with tears just streaming down her face, insisting that she had to come in right then and, um, get, and get her stuff. And he just gave up. He went in and he told Carrie, he said, I'm sorry, but I have a situation here and this other woman I'm dating is upset. And she was a really good sport about it. And Carrie said, that's okay. You know, we've all been there. Um, let me know when you get it worked out. So she left and Liz came in and wanted to get into an argument with Dave now. He just wanted her to go. He was really frustrated because his date with Carrie was ruined and now he had Liz upset. And finally she left and uh, he, Carrie, and she invited him to, uh, to her place. So they actually ended up having... Um, you know, a, a nice date uh, that first night together, and they hung out at Carrie's house. But I don't think that they were alone. I think there was probably someone lurking outside who had followed them. You talk about that Liz was also adamant that now, on November 10th, she asked if they could get together sometime, but also that she was had some pots and pans mm-hmm. at the house. So he offered, instead of her coming over, for him to deliver those. When he delivered those yes. pots and pans, what happened? <laughs> uh, he barely made it in the door, and she spoofed him. And he thought, hey, you know, it's one last time. You know, let's say goodbye and, you know, have a little fun. And, and he and Carrie were not in a committed relationship. Um, she felt the way he did that she wasn't ready to be tied down. So it wasn't as if he was cheating on on Carrie. And he thought that that would be it. He thought that that would be um, the end. Unfortunately, she wasn't ready. Liz was not ready to let go. It was interesting, too, that uh, shortly after, there was a man named Sam Carver. We're talking about Facebook now. He asked to be Carrie Farver's friend on Facebook. And they were from a small place. Macedonia is very small. She didn't know Mm -hmm. him. She contacted him and said, "Do, do I know you? Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, I know you. But what was interesting is, and this will be important later, he spelled Macedonia, the place he lived in, incorrectly. Yes. Yes. And that was a little suspicious to her. And she she didn't accept or reject his friend request. I think she was uh, rolling them around. Now, this relationship with, with Dave and Carrie is, is going at a pretty good pace. They're really enjoying each other and they're staying with each other. There was a situation where she wanted to stay at the apartment. She had a big job and she'd be closer to her work. And her son, Maxwell, stayed with her, with her mother, Nancy. Uh, yeah. This had only been two weeks since her first date with Dave. Now, we're talking about Tuesday, November 13th, 2012. She got up early and Dave had to be at work for 6.30. Uh, she was a computer coder at this West Corporation, so she got up early and did some coding for work. What happens later when Carrie is supposed to show up at work? What happens? Well, she doesn't show up, and they were right in the middle of a big project, and her supervisor was surprised because Carrie was very dependable, 
And so she called and there was no answer and she kept calling all day and there was no word from her at all. Incredible. What about uh, Carrie's mom, Nancy? She was taking care of her son. What happened? Nancy, she hasn't heard for a couple of days. Yeah, Nancy was very uh, concerned because she talked to Carrie almost every day. They were very, very close. And all of a sudden, she's getting these texts that are coming from Carrie's number. And they don't really sound like Carrie. For one thing, Carrie was meticulous with grammar and punctuation. And she would never send a text until it was perfect. And so suddenly, here come these texts with these these misspelled words and um, really not Carrie style at all. And she's saying that she's going to uh, quit her job and, and move away. And her mother was really shocked to hear that. She wasn't quite sure what was going on. She called police. Did police, she showed them the text. What did police have to say about her concerns? <laughs> Well, they were they were polite, but they didn't think it was really cause for alarm. And and really, most of the time when adults are reported missing, they are okay. So it was sort of a log- logical conclusion for them because they they didn't really know Nancy, and they didn't know that you know she wasn't one to um, to raise an alarm without cause. And um, they politely took the information, but they didn't at that point, do any deep investigation. Um, they, did, they checked out a few things, and they soon learned that some vandalism had been reported in Omaha and that the, Carrie was being blamed for that. So they thought that maybe Carrie had slipped out, told her mother, you know, we see this all the time. People stop taking their meds, you know, and they lose it, and she probably just had a breakdown. And her, her that didn't sound right to her mother, but she wanted to believe it was that because the other things she was thinking were so much worse. Right. At the same time, unbeknownst to Nancy and Dave is receiving text apparently from Carrie, what kind of messages is he getting and what is he noticing in terms of spelling and grammar as well? Well, Dave left Carrie at his apartment that first morning um, and she was working on her computer, and he went to work. And mid-morning, he got a text from her saying, let's move in together. And that struck him as odd because he made such a point with her that he wanted to be free, and he thought she felt the same. And so he said, no, we were not going to do that. And he received back a very rude text, um, basically breaking up with him. Done him, because it really didn't sound like Carrie. Um, but he, but it came, the message came from her phone, and at that point, he didn't, he didn't question it. He just thought, well, maybe I didn't know this lady as well as I thought, you know, because they'd been dating a couple of weeks, and people are on their best behavior in the beginning, and um, so he was kind of rattled by it, but he accepted it, and um, he thought they'd broken up. Nancy had a different situation when she l- listened to these texts or read these texts in that she just wanted to talk to her daughter. In that regard, what did she say to her daughter via those texts to try to elicit a response that she wanted? She said, I really want to hear your voice. I need you to call. You know, this isn't talking. I need to hear you. Because she was doubting that it was Carrie. It didn't sound, her daughter was very soft, coming in, were very rude. One thing that they announced as well, or the 
detective or deputy sheriff Phillips is involved and another detective Ron Ambrose, they interview workers that work with Carrie and they said no sign that she might have been thinking of leaving or there was any problem whatsoever. Then Carrie's supervisor got a text. What what was it said in that text? And then what was the recommendation apparently made by Carrie? Um, the text said that Carrie was quitting without notice. It was supposedly from Carrie. It came from her number. And it said, I'm sending a replacement over. And her name is, um, is uh, Jenna Golier. Jenna Liz Golier. They thought that was odd because you don't name your own replacement. It was, it was a, they have a very grueling um, hiring process. It involves a lot of interviews. People have to be qualified and they say um, they're not hired by a friend or by somebody who, you know, who's quitting. So they thought it was really strange, you know, but they, they hadn't, Carrie had worked there for a few months and they hadn't known her all that long. Um, from what they knew of her, she was really responsible and a good worker, but nobody knew her as well as her family did, as well as her mother did. Uh, her her mother and son were the uh, only ones who were initially really alarmed, and also her um, her stepfather, the people who knew her the best. But the rest of the world seemed to be on um, board with the idea that she just flipped out. To add credence to this, these texts, she also, or the Carrie apparently, also texted Deputy Phillips. What did she What did she say in that text to Deputy Phillips? Well, when the detectives, you know, started nosing around in Omaha, they talked to Dave. They actually came up with the name Liz Golier because Nancy Reney had uh, received a photograph of a check for five thousand dollars from someone named Liz Bollier, and it came from Carrie's phone, and it said, um, hey, Mom, I sold my furniture. I want you to let this person in the house to come get my stuff, and Nancy refused. So because they had this name, the detectives did go uh, to Liz's house. They left a message for her, and Liz called them back and said, well, yes, there's this woman flipped out, and um, you know, she's stalking us and broke into my garage and she stole all my checks and, you know, she wrote on the wall. And so um, the detectives thought, well, this confirms what we've been thinking as Carrie has flipped out. And then they went and talked with Dave. And shortly after that, they, the detective had actually been trying to reach Carrie and was um, calling her phone. And he got a text message saying that, you know, I want you to leave Dave alone. Uh, my mother overreacted, you know, I'm fine, blah, blah, blah. So that was the conclusion. Like, yeah. And it's, and she was, she said some kind of, or the text said some kind of threatening things about Liz. So the police thought, wow, um, Carrie seems like she's, you know, she's um, really aggressive toward Liz. We better warn Liz. So they told Liz, well, maybe you should get a restraining order. And they warned her, right. you know, this could be a dangerous situation. They didn't know Carrie. You know, they didn't know that she was a kind, thoughtful person who would never hurt anybody in her life. All they knew was what they were hearing from Nancy and Carrie's mom. And, of course, a mother's always going to say nice things about their kids. So I think the police don't always take what parents say at face value. 
And they're listening to to Dave and Liz telling them about these rude texts that they're receiving. So they accepted the idea that that Carrie was um, causing trouble. Let's use this as an opportunity, Leslie, to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, which is Ritual. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard to eat kale salads and drink green smoothies, we're still most likely not getting all of the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms. No shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm to your body than good. Two easy-to-take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. My wife Lisa has been taking Ritual for almost three months now. She loves that there's no stores she needs to visit, and she really respected Ritual's research into creating this vitamin. She was very impressed. And she feels Ritual is helping her feel better and says she can feel the difference Ritual has made. From D3 to Omega-3, Ritual's Essential for Women helps fill gaps in a woman's diet. Their no-nausea capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach, and there's a mint tab in every bottle to keep things fresh, so you don't get that fishy aftertaste common with most Omega-3s. A subscription is easy to start, and it's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight, and right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com murder to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com murder. Now, Leslie, we have this situation where the police believe that Carrie isn't taking her meds and that she's having a breakdown and that Liz is in danger and they believe the ruse that this stalker, this person is putting forth. What happens next in terms of the escalation of the texts from Liz and the relationship that she's trying to to force upon Dave? How does that fare? Well, actually thousands and thousands of texts and emails are sent and over the next years. And Liz and Dave had, had parted ways because she was so upset about Carrie. Um, but now they were bonding because they were both seemingly being stalked by a crazy person. And so they started right. seeing each other again. And Liz told them, oh, she's, you know, she's scared. And, you know, why come, you know, I'm so scared this crazy woman is, is you know, after me and, uh, why couldn't you have just been satisfied with what you had? You had to go invite this lunatic into our lives. And, and Dave felt horrible um, because he thought, well, look what I've done. You know, I dated somebody who's causing um, problems for the people I know. Because she also, well, the, the stalker was actually also sending messages to Amy, his ex. And some of the messages were really threatening. He got worried about his kids. I mean, his kids would come over, and um, he'd watch them very, very carefully, even though they were older. They were preteen, but he got very worried because it seemed like that somebody with a screw loose was set on causing him harm. At the same time that he would have problems with Liz, and again, her jealousy would come to the forefront, so he would, they would 
take a pause in their relationship, he continued to date and meet women online. Those women that he met, what was characterized by soon after he met them and had a relationship with them, what, what would happen? Anytime he dated somebody or even um, messaged with them online, they would receive threats from his stalker. And it understandably, um, they were upset and they weren't interested in dating him when he came with a stalker. It was pretty scary to them. So he found that uh, there was only one person who was loyal, only one person who would um, stand by his side, and that was Liz. And Liz was not deterred by the threats from the stalker. And so he was grateful to her for that because she was sticking around and nobody else would. But he still didn't want, he didn't love her. He didn't want to be in a long uh, time relationship with her. Um, she was okay company, you know, and, and they had something in common now. They were both being stopped. So um, that was really the basis for their whole relationship. He said 99% of the time they were talking about the stalker, um, talking about how they could um, the stalker, talking about what the stalker was going to do next. And that was their whole life, was dealing with this and thinking about it and talking about it. Meanwhile, in this story, there's a person named Garrett Sloan, and he works at the IT department at this Potawatomi County. Um, mm -hmm. But he's also in a relationship with someone for, well, maybe a fair amount of time. And tell us about this relationship that he believes he's in and well, what he thinks of, and, and his meeting with Liz. Well, he actually, he um, met, he met a woman online also, and it happened to be Liz Golier, who was so obsessed with Dave and insisting that Dave exclusively, um, yet the whole right. time she'd been dating um, Garrett for the last couple of years, and she kept him a wow. secret from Dave. So he was oblivious. Garrett was just a very, very nice guy. Had no idea that his girlfriend was cheating on him. No idea. He didn't know who Dave Cooper was. He thought everything was fine. He also was not in love with Liz, but he he liked her a lot, and he hoped that their relationship could develop. But he was not in love. What did Garrett represent to her and present well, for her? She used him quite a bit. He helped her out with things. I actually think that if he had given her any reason to be jealous, she would have found him more attractive and would have become obsessed with him too. And I think that for her, the challenge of trying to win a guy is what excited her the most. And because Garrett was a very nice guy and he never, never gave her any reason to worry or be jealous, um, she lost interest. She hung around because he helped her out financially. And he was a nice guy. He was easy to be around. They had a, um, a physical relationship, but her true obsession was with Dave. You write about uh, a July 4th. They were together, Garrett and Liz, but she spent four hours on the phone texting with apparently a mechanic was just a friend. Uh, Garrett is not a stupid man, but he did have his suspicions about this four-hour call. But when he confronted her, what would she always say and how would she act? Um, anytime he was suspicious about something and asked about it, she would slip it on him to make it seem like that he was acting jealous and that he was being unreasonable. 
And she was very, very good at convincing him that was the case. And these, these people are, and these sociopaths, particularly the female sociopaths, know how to manipulate. And they can um, flip situations around um, to make themselves look good and make uh, everybody else look bad. And she made him feel like he was being a jerk uh, for his suspicion. So he would always back off. And he was easy, he's a really nice, easygoing guy. So he would, he would just, he'd think, oh, you know, she's obviously she's with me. She's sticking around, so you know it must be my imagination. At some point, there becomes a change in the detectives that were invested. Well, we talked about the first people initially looked at this. They had gathered information. They had uh, taken Carrie's vehicle. They had taken photographs. They had examined it. Uh, they did, as you write, gather a lot of information, not necessarily seeing what was going on. They didn't, didn't know, but they did do a good job of collecting, preserving evidence, taking yes. photographs. At some point, there's a new change and a Detective Doty and a Detective Avis come on the scene and they have a different approach. They look at this case differently and then they want to speak to Garrett. But what is their different approach? And then tell us about their conversation with Garrett and what they tell him. Well, Davis um, and Doughty are both very smart. They were not buying what everybody was saying about Carrie being a stalker, and they thought it was it was suspect. So they decided to work the case, and one of them approached it uh, and investigated it as if Carrie were alive and was stalking, and the other one approached it as if she was dead. And they were quickly able to determine she wasn't alive. Nobody had seen her heard her voice, her paychecks were picked up, no money had been withdrawn from her bank, except for a couple year, couple of days after she was last seen, uh, somebody used her debit card at a Walmart and a dollar store in Omaha. But other than, and then the bank, it was not Carrie's uh, usual pattern. But it just didn't make sense that she would abandon her, her child, her dying father, her mother, she was close to her house, her job. It made no sense. And so they quickly determined that Cherry was uh, no longer alive. And that was actually um, a couple of guys they worked with, I believe, who called Garrett in to talk to him about the situation uh, with his girlfriend being stunned um, by um, a woman named Cherry. And Garrett didn't even learn about this alleged stalking until the morning that he was called in for the interview. And the first time uh, Liz ever mentioned it to him that morning, she didn't say who it was. She just said somebody was bothering her. And um, he went in and he sat down and the detectives asked him what his relationship with, with Liz was. And he said, you know, we're... You know, we were in a couple, we've been in a relationship for a couple of years, and, and they were exclusive. And they said some things that sort of shocked him. They told him that Liz was having an affair with a man named Dave Cooper, and that there was a woman named Carrie who was really jealous, who was stalking both Liz and Dave because of that. And then they pulled, they, they got this information, a lot of the information of Garrett from Liz's phone, because she and Dave had actually uh, let the police download 
of their phone in the hopes that it would help them catch the stalker. When the police did that, they recognized Garrett in one of the pictures, and that's how they knew to talk to him. And they told him, they said, uh, she had your picture labeled badass. And they showed him the picture, but there was no label on it. And he, he wasn't sure he thought that didn't sound right. He couldn't believe he would do that. And after the interview, he asked her about everything they told him. And she said, oh, they had it all wrong. How dare he accuse her of, of dating Dave. Dave was an old friend, and they saw each other when their kids played together. There was nothing to that. And, and you know, they, they, she said, well, I just we told you. You know, we, I just told you this morning I was being stopped. And, and of course, she would never label a picture of him fat ass and how dare he suggest such a thing um so once again she flipped it around on him so he felt foolish he thought he felt like he'd done something wrong same time he said there was a seed planted a seed of doubt and it grew Mm -hmm. this noose is tightening around liz gollier and when i mentioned about the forensic evidence the digital forensic evidence of the phones there is a special deputy, uh, Cava, that does an amazing job of organizing all of these things, all of the emails and text, but also they find things like metadata showing that the photo taken, uh, there was a photo taken that she had sent in text that looked like somebody was a a, a fake kidnapping. Uh, They looked Mm -hmm. at that metadata and realized that that had come from a phone identical to the one Liz Gallier had. But all of this evidence, yes. as you write, is all circumstantial. As, as they tighten the noose, they need more and more and more to put this thing together. There's not enough evidence. There's not a body. There's not a murder weapon. And it's a very confusing case. So what they do is they, they keep putting the pressure on, and, and Doty says that he loves the interrogation process itself. So he plays her, acts like Columbo, gets information out of her. By this point... Strangely, she has pointed and said that Carrie is no longer sending her messages, and she believes that Carrie is not the stalker, but Amy is now the stalker. With Detective Doty and with Detective Avis news, and eventually they get search warrants for her, for Garrett's, and for her apartment. At that apartment, you say it's a mother load of information. What do they find at that apartment that's incriminating? A number of things, uh, including a video camera that had been stolen from uh, Carrie's house. And within that, there was actually a video that, of Carrie. So they knew that it was definitely Carrie's camera. So right there, it proved that, that Liz had actually gone into her home and taken something. They found other telephones that they could connect, like cell phones that they could connect to some of the um, the texts and the emails that were sent. And it was actually a huge mess that they had to piece together because there were so many uh, texts and so many emails. And she had open email accounts, many, many different names. So they had to un- untangle all of that. It was a grueling process. There also was a, a, a one print left in Carrie's vehicle. It was on a mint box, and that was a match. So they put all this circumstantial evidence together. She's eventually arrested. Tell us about that arrest. Tell us what happened. Well, the ultimate arrest, um, she is arrested and questioned earlier on. 
um, in the end, they finally had enough evidence. It was a huge pile of evidence. And they uh, went to her. She had moved um, to Persia, Iowa, and was living in an apartment over. Uh, it's kind of a creepy old building that used to be the funeral home. And they went there and knocked on the door, and she, she they woke her up. She came out, and her hair was tousled, and they put the cuffs on her, and she was done. She gets a, a, a defense lawyer, you write this, James Martin Davis. Nebraska has the death penalty. It's a capital case. But however, uh, with a female and with all the mitigating circumstances, or ag- pardon me, aggravating circumstances, how does this trial proceed and what happens at this trial ultimately? Well, it's kind of interesting because um, the prosecutors were very, very good, and so was the defense attorney. So they all had really good arguments, but ultimately the evidence that the prosecutors had, it was, it was so powerful that there was no getting around it. There was quite a bit of evidence, but the most powerful piece was something that the detectives didn't have at the time they arrested her. They were getting close to trial time, and her attorney had wisely set the trial for, um, there was like three months after the time she was arrested, three or four months, and the right. prosecutors normally have over a year, sometimes two years, um, but her attorney did not want to give detectives time to find a body. And uh, nobody cases are more difficult to prosecute. So they were rushing, trying to get everything ready. And one of the detectives stopped by and gave Koopa's work and said, is there, um, is there anything else, any other electronic device that you might have um, forgotten about? And he said, you know, I think there's a tablet in storage. So he went and looked, and sure enough, there was one there. And they found that um, the disk in that tablet had been recycled and it had one time been in Liz's phone and she had deleted photos that she thought were gone forever. And some of them were extremely incriminating. There were actually photographs of a tattoo and it looked like it was on a foot, but it was kind of hard to tell. They had a forensic pathologist study it and it turned out it was a photograph of Terry's tattoo on a foot in a state of decay. So Liz had photographed her after death as souvenirs, probably, and then decided to get rid of it. She probably thought it was incriminating to keep it around. And when she deleted it, she thought it was gone forever, but it wasn't. And so that was the most powerful evidence. The circumstantial evidence, not that anyone will absolutely conclusively know, but they put together Liz's comments as a stalker. And they said that some of it was pure fantasy. You read some of it pure fantasy, but a lot of it was incriminating, accurate evidence. From that circumstantial, as much as best guess and putting it all together, what did Avis and Doty and then the prosecutor basically say had happened to Carrie Farver, November 13th? Well, the stalker had sent letters, sent emails, now claiming that she was Amy, who was very, very sweet woman who would never hurt anybody. And again, that's Dave Sachs. And uh, while in Amy's name, the stalkers said that they had attacked Carrie in her car and stabbed her. So the detectives had already searched the car um, and the car had been sold since then. So they tracked down the new owner and got permission to study it. And they pulled out the front seat 
and peeled back the cover and found that the passenger seat had at one time been drenched with blood. They could still see the blood in the seat. So that sent uh, an email, the threatening email that had come in that was supposedly the confession from Amy. That somebody was trying to frame Amy and make it look like that she had stabbed Carrie in the car. So there were little things like that that said truth. Somebody had blood in that seat. And the detectives decided that this is where, unfortunately, poor Carrie had probably died. And this is where she was attacked. But they knew Amy hadn't done it. Yeah. By now, they traced all the emails directly to, um, to Liz. They knew where they were coming from. Yeah. One last thing as well, an interesting thing was, again, not proof, but there was some indication there was a photo sent in those stocking texts about a burnt tarp. So what did they surmise in terms of the disposal? Again, the body was never found. What did they surmise happened? Well, nobody really knows for sure. And it's, you know, it's, it's not something that anyone likes to contemplate, but they think that it was very likely that she burned Carrie after death. And we don't know, you know, if, if she burned part of her or all of her, but her body's never been found. Mm-hmm. You talk about the trial and uh, Carrie's family being present and, and Nancy also being present as well. Uh, and, and also the odd behavior of Liz Gallier. So tell us what, how she responded to this entire trial and then tell us what the outcome was? Well, um, some of the testimony was absolutely heartbreaking. And there were people crying. I mean, this wonderful woman, Carrie, lost her life. Uh, but Liz was unmoved by that. She barely had a flicker of expression on her face. The only time she lit up is when Dave took the stand. And then she gazed at him adoringly. But other than that, she's unfazed. Yes. So that was kind of, you know, you watch how something is so shit up uh, once they're arrested. And their reaction is often really flat. They can be really good at imitating emotion. Other times they're just flat. Yeah. This was a victory for the prosecution and for the detectives and for the families. Uh, she didn't get the death penalty, but what was her sentence? She was also convicted for the arson as well. Yes, um, she is in prison for life, and she's still trying to prove her innocence. And we, she did write me a letter about that. Um, she's already, um, she's not getting out. I mean, she already appealed in the list. But she mm-hmm. believes she's getting out. She believes she can do it. Yeah. It was sad, too, that during this, that Carrie's father had died of the cancer. There's a very sad story for for many people in this. Nancy got some answers, but again, not not a happy ending by any means. Anthony Cava did an admirable job here. And so uh, what about Maxwell? What about Carrie's son? Was 16 he's at the he's time. doing what really well. He's doing really well. He's going to college and um, he's going into um, working on computers also, doing coding like his mother did. And he's getting married and he's a strong young man. And so they're doing the, you know, it's, it's just a heartbreak for the family. Something you'll never get over that they're doing as well as can be expected. And they're the nicest mm-hmm. people. They're just really, really kind, uh, down-to-earth people, the whole family. And it's just mm-hmm. very sad that this tragedy had to hit them. Yeah. And, and Carrie had so much to give. She was young. She was very young. And, 
and she was a good, good person, and her friends miss her charity is your family. Absolutely. Now, with the, as a result of this book, too, we mentioned uh, Special Deputy Anthony Cava. At the end of this book, he has a, a website for tips on staying safe in the cyber world. And also, you provide that link, but also your link, which is just a little bit easier to to remember, I guess, www.authorlesleyrule.com. And again, I think it's, it's in keeping with saving lives, getting people to understand this and to be cautioned uh, by this. Um, so you provide this link for people to, again, tips on staying safe in the cyber world. Would you mind reading what his, his um, website is? Because I don't have it in front of me. And that would be good if people would like to go to, to Anthony's um, website and see his tips. Do you have that in front of you? I, I don't have it in front of me, but <laughs> I will. I say, but like, like I say, I, I, yours is much easier, and you can go to either okay. com, and then uh, you, you can contribute to Anthony Cavada's website or take a look at it. I want to thank you so much, Leslie, for coming on and talking about this true crime debut, and it is an incredible true crime debut, a tangled web, a cyber stalker, a deadly obsession, and a twisting path to justice. I want to thank you so much for this interview. Well, thanks for having me. It was really nice to talk with you. And again, we just mentioned your website for people who want to find out more information about this. Of course, this is an audio book, paperback, and ebook everywhere available. Again, I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about your incredible A Tangled Web. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.